The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. I will be reading from Psalms 119, verses 65 through 72. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart, I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. May the Lord bless the reading of God's word to our hearts. Pray with me. Father God, your word is sweeter than honey. It is more valuable than gold. It is more precious to us than anything this world has to offer. So Father, we ask that you would make us a people who rightly appraises your word. Not that we come and bring judgment against your word, not that we dictate the value of your word, but that we would see it as it is. That we would rightly recognize its value. And that we would submit to it wholly and completely that we would approach your word not with the desire to put our thoughts upon it but to live under it Father we know this is not a thing that we can do in our flesh it must be by the working of your spirit and so we ask Father that your spirit would have its way now that you would soften our hearts that you would open our eyes that you would help us to see you as you really are to receive your word as the all-sufficient, inerrant, infallible, authoritative word that it is. Father God, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So these people in Ephesus to whom the apostle Paul is writing, they had not always been right with God. By the time we arrive at the second chapter of this letter, we'll find Paul telling these saints that they were once children of wrath and sons of disobedience. 
These people who Paul now calls the saints, every single one of them once followed after Satan, the prince of the power of the air. Paul says that they did this because it's what they wanted. It seemed right to them, was the passion of their flesh, was the desire of their mind and of their body to live, to wallow in, to embrace sin, to follow after the devil and to reject God, just like their first father, Adam. Paul says that this is a natural state of every single one of these men. In fact, the natural state of every single man that has ever lived. Speaking to a similar group of believers in the uh, town of Corinth, in the sixth chapter of his first letter to that people, he says this, that many of them were once sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, greedy, drunkards, abusers, and liars. The very kinds of unrighteous people who God says will not inherit the kingdom of God. The very kinds of people that God says are worthy of his eternal wrath. Paul now calls them dear brothers, holy saints blessed by God. In the third chapter of Paul's letter to the church in Rome, we find him saying this, that all men are under sin. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, no, not even one. There is no fear of God in their eyes. Now you must understand that the Apostle Paul, he is not caught up in hyperbole here. He is not exaggerating. He is merely speaking of sin and sinners the way that God does. Clearly, the Apostle Paul, he has not fallen for the lie that seems to have ensnared so many professing Christians today. The Apostle Paul, he knows that deep down, that by our very nature, man is not mostly good. Quite the opposite. Paul knew, along with King David, he knew that man is born in sin. From the very moment of our conception, in our union with Adam, we are not only guilty before God, but we are sinful by nature. Every part of man desperately affected by our own sin and depravity. Don't take my word for it. Just go down the preschool hall. You know that there is no one who loves children more than me. I desperately love children and have devoted much of my life to teaching this word to them. But walk down that hall and you will very quickly recognize that it does not matter how peaceful and kind and Christian a home they grow up in. They're a bunch of little sinners. It flows from their heart. They love the very sin that makes them enemies with God by nature. And so if we're to be right with God, more than this, if we're to find ourselves as recipients of these endless spiritual blessings that Paul points us to here, then it must be on the basis of something, more accurately, someone else. Someone else's righteousness. Someone else's goodness. The works of someone else. We know, of course, that that someone else is Christ Jesus our Lord. That there's absolutely nothing within man. There's absolutely nothing that man can do to fix what has been broken. There's nothing that we can do to earn favor with God. Our only hope, therefore, is found in Christ. Union to Christ through faith. It's the only way man can ever be right with God. The only way that we can be cleansed of our sin. The only way we can be spared of God's eternal wrath. Again, I say the only way we can be made right with God is to repent and trust in Christ Jesus. If this doesn't happen, we will simply continue on separated from God from all eternity. So as we continue verse by verse, 
through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. As we look at these great spiritual blessings, as our heart grows in anticipation of how he's going to unveil them in our lives, the question that must be on our mind is this. If our only hope to have these spiritual blessings, if our only hope for eternal life is found in faith in Christ Jesus, would we not be fools then to ask of these men who were once sons of disobedience, children of wrath, would we not be fools to then ask, how did you come to be in Christ? What's different about you? What happened that caused you to move from a child of darkness, a son of the devil, to a son of God? You grew up in the very same culture as everyone else there in Ephesus, surrounded by the same spiritual darkness, born with the same nature, again, enemies of God, children of wrath. How then have you come to believe? What is it that caused you to hear the gospel and come to faith in Jesus Christ while so many others in Ephesus rejected it? Now, surely this is not the first time that you've thought about this question. Consider your own family. Many of you grew up surrounded by spiritual darkness. You did not grow up in a home where you went to church each Sunday morning. You were not read stories from Scripture as you laid down in bed. You had never actually heard an adult pray out loud in your entire life. Your only access to the gospel came from some nice neighbor lady or maybe a friend at school. And yet you believed. While that kid that grew up down the street in a nice Christian home, with all the possible advantages a child could have, he is lost and in utter darkness to this day. What about your own children? If I can be more personal. What about your own children? Same parents. Same home. Same experience. Same church. Sometimes even twins sharing the same womb. One child a sold out follower of Jesus Christ and the other one desperately clinging to darkness. How? Why? What is the primary and ultimate reason, the true cause behind one man coming to Christ while so many other reject the gospel and continue on in darkness? Dear friends, I submit to you that the answer to this question is provided in the Bible in shocking clarity and absolute consistency. And my desperate hope this morning is to hold that answer before your eyes. I want you to know that I pray. I want you to know that I have enlisted people that are sitting throughout this room right now. I enlisted them this week to pray specifically for this message. That God would give you eyes to see and ears to hear in the working of his word and by the power of his spirit that God would overcome my weakness to help you see. Because the reality is that no amount of human debate, no level of human wisdom or cunning is going to compel anyone to believe this. It must be the working of God. For those of you that already know the answer, I praise God for you. I praise God that he has given you eyes to see. And I know that there are many of you I praise God that there are so many that you've been blessed by God to see and embrace the answer to this question. But I know that there's still some things that don't quite match up. There's still some pieces that feel disjointed. It doesn't all quite yet make sense. And so my prayer for you is that God would use this time. He would use our time together in this word. He would use the frailty of me as the messenger. He would overcome my weakness and he would give you a clearer vision of himself and the way that he works to bring about your salvation. I pray that what happens is during our time in the word this morning, that it would prove to be like jet fuel upon the fire of your soul, 
that your joy and your love and your worship and your assurance of your salvation would grow by leaps and bounds as a result of what God reveals of himself and his plan and his purposes and his word. So my plan is to move slowly and to speak plainly. I ask you to listen prayerfully. I ask you to trust God to give you discernment. I ask you to test, to examine whether I'm rightly handling the scriptures and then to come to me with questions. Don't ask other people to explain to you what I meant by what I said. Come to me. My door is always open. I promise you, I cherish the opportunity to sit down with a brother or sister and help them work through this. I even cherish those times when they come to me with anger. But the opportunity to sit with someone and to show them how I landed where I landed, to unfold the scriptures and ask, what is God saying and what does he mean by what he has said? And so, what is the true and ultimate reason why one man comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ while so many others persist in sin? In the language of this morning's text, how do we account for the fact that anyone goes from being an enemy of God to enjoying these endless spiritual blessings? The answer is because they have been chosen by God before the foundation of the world. I'm going to speak more plainly. Based solely on his sovereign will, God has chosen, he has predestined, he has elected those whom he will save. Not based on anything within those men. Not because of anything they had or would do. Not based on any condition that they had met, but according to his own good pleasure. As an act of unparalleled grace in eternity past, God sovereignly chose the specific individual people whom he would save. Every single one that God has chosen are guaranteed to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. It is only in Christ, it is only through faith and union with him that any man will be saved. So therefore, all whom God has chosen will come to Christ, guaranteed without exception. That's the efficacious nature of his grace. It is in the infinite power of God and the working of his spirit that he graciously intervenes in the lives of his chosen people to work repentance and faith and bring about salvation. This is why you have come to faith in Christ. This is why you are being saved and so many others are rejecting the gospel. It's according to God's immutable purpose and perfect plan. According to his sovereign decree, God has chosen. According to nothing other than his grace, his goodness, his mercy, his love, his will, God has chosen you and done absolutely everything necessary to accomplish, to apply, to guarantee your salvation. Now everything that I've just said to you is absolutely worthless. Worse than this, it is a lie and biblically untrue unless it is grounded in the scriptures. So in light of this, in light of all that I've just said to you, I ask you to listen to the words of Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14 with these ears. Having heard all that I've just said, with this question upon your heart, what causes one man to believe and another to continue on in his sin? And see if God does not answer this question very clearly right here. I ask you to return to your feet, please. And the reverence to the reading of God's word. 
I remind you that these are the words of the Apostle Paul. Therefore, they're the words of Christ. Therefore, they're the words of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. All God's people said, Amen, you may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you make this book live to me? For it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. The phrase that Paul uses here at the beginning of verse 4, even as, in Greek, it's only one word, kathos. It can often be translated as just as, in a, in a form of com comparison. We might also translate the word as likewise or in this way. This seems to be the way that the apostle uses this word in Ephesians 4.17 4, where he says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. But there's another way that, that Paul can use this word. Oftentimes this word kathos, it can denote causation. It can be translated as since or because. This is the way that Paul uses it in Romans 1.28 where he says, and since, and because, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. So we see that God gave these men up to a debased mind because since they had persisted in their sin. So when we read that Paul says here that God has blessed his saints with every spiritual blessing even as he chose us, what does this mean? Does this mean that God has blessed us and that blessing is seen in his choosing us? Or does it mean that God has blessed us because he chose us? God's choosing. Is it a spiritual blessing or is it the cause of all spiritual blessings? Yes. It's both. I believe, in fact, that it is both a spiritual blessing and the cause of every spiritual blessing. Can there be any greater spiritual blessing than this? Is this not at the heart of all spiritual blessings? To be able to proclaim with the saints, God chose me. God chose me that I would be holy and blameless before him. Now we'll talk about holiness and blamelessness in due time. 
But is that not in and of itself a spiritual blessing to be found as holy and blameless before God? And yet, as I presented to you in the introduction, is this not the root, the foundation, the true cause of all blessings, the reality that God chose us? That God chose us. His choosing was a spiritual blessing. This spiritual blessing comes to us because he chose us. Now, I realize this sounds a bit like nonsense at first. You're saying that God chose us because he chose us? Yes. I'm telling you that's a thing that only God could say. Turn to Deuteronomy with me, please. The book of Deuteronomy, chapter 7. I believe this reality is seen all throughout the Bible. It is absolutely fundamental to my understanding of this morning's text. Deuteronomy, chapter 7, beginning in verse 6. For you are a people, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love upon you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the hand, excuse me, from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt. Do you see what God is saying? Specifically, look there at the end of verse 7, the beginning of verse 8. He says, I didn't choose you because you were the best and the brightest. I didn't set my love upon you because you were a mighty nation. I set my love upon you because I love you and because I chose to enter into a promise with your fathers. I love you because I love you. Not based on anything within you, not based on any external call, because you have nothing to commend yourself to me. You're not the decisive reason for this love. The answer is, I love you because I love you. I chose you because I chose you. That's what God is saying to the saints in Ephesus. That's what God is saying to the saints sitting here in this room, that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing because he chose us, because he chose to choose us in Christ. Now, as I said, I want to make sure that I speak in plain terms. Make sure that I slow down. It's not always easy for me to speak slowly. But I know that the reality is that in a gathering like this, there are people from all kinds of theological traditions. Again, I recognize that many of you just very recently have come to recognize the undeniable truth of God's absolute sovereignty in choosing his people. And again, I say I know that there are still questions there. There's still nagging doubts. There's still concerns that you have with regards to how does all this work together. So I say to you that in my experience, there are four primary ways in which men interact with this verse. Verse 4 here in Ephesians 1. I find four primary ways in which men interpret this text. And it seems to me that working through each of those interpretations one by one is our best hope for this morning. Now, I don't do this to present to you some kind of one-sided debate. And I promise you that I've worked hard in choosing my words to make certain that I'm not building up a straw man just to knock him down. But I know how long so many of you have sat under these traditions. I know what happens. You hear a clear statement like I made in my introduction with regards to God's sovereignty and choosing those whom he will save, and immediately your traditions come crashing in. Immediately your pre presuppositions come crashing in. Dear friends, we all have them. As I've said to you on many occasions, you can't read a greeting card. You can't watch a commercial without your own thoughts coming in. 
So I recognize that you hear me say something as bold and straightforward and clear as what I've just said in my introduction, and immediately these thoughts come in. And so oftentimes, the best way to come to a clear understanding of what I am saying, what I believe that Scripture is saying, is to clear away some of that. That's our hope to bring sharp focus to this, is to offer a brief and concise positive presentation. What do I believe the scripture says? Then I make clear to you what it's not saying, and then I circle back and I show you how this proves to be true in the scripture. This is the pattern that I find in all the great reformed confessions. I believe that this is the best way for us to come to a clear understanding of what Paul actually meant by what he actually said. And there is an answer to that. You recognize this. All the interpretations can't be right. Either one of them is right and all the others are wrong or all of us are wrong. But we cannot all be right. Our goal must be to come to an answer. What does Paul actually mean by what he actually says? So I'm certain by now that many of you have learned that when it comes to this verse, God has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. I'm sure that many of you have learned that the primary response of a number of people is something along the lines of this. Anytime the doctrine of election comes up, we are Southern Baptists. We don't believe in predestination. I've heard from you. I've heard from you just how many times you have heard these exact words. And while I sympathize with the sentiment, It is both historically inaccurate, but worse than this, it's unbiblical. The concepts and language of God's choosing and electing and predestining a people for himself is all over the Bible. As a matter of fact, I would point out to you that every time it's presented, it is simply stated as fact. Even in Romans 9, whenever the Apostle Paul is dealing with his opponent, He is not defending the reality of election, nor is the objector denying it. The question is whether or not God is unjust in his election, whether or not God is unrighteous in his choosing. Dear children, you cannot just say, I don't believe in predestination or election or God choosing a people. It's literally right there. I didn't put it there, nor did John Calvin. These words were put here by those inspired by the Holy Spirit of God to reveal him to us. And so you've got to do something with it. But sadly, so many people don't. So many preachers, they tie themselves up in knots trying to explain it away. Have you ever heard those men that they come to the Old Testament and whenever they come to those difficult names, they just kind of slur their way through the names? How many Baptist preachers have you heard do that with the word predestination? They skimmed by it and hoped that nobody heard it. And so as a result, so many laymen have come to believe that this is some high-minded, unimportant, unknowable mystery. This is just a thing for the lofty theologians to sit around and debate about. This is just a thing that divides churches and causes men to fight, but it has no real relevance, no real practicality for the ordinary Christian. But need I remind you who the Apostle Paul is writing here, writing to here? the ordinary Christian, to the saints, to the church, not just to the elders, not to the other apostles, to the stay-at-home mom seeking to love Christ with all her heart. 
to the man who leaves his house and heads to the plant looking to honor God in his day-to-day life. The ordinary Christian, don't you see? God wants you to know this because God wants you to know him. Again, I say remember the context. The apostle Paul has just burst forth into doxology. The Christian will be driven to praise and worship when he recognizes God's sovereignty in the election of his chosen people. Not simply because it tells us about how God has accomplished something, but because it tells us something about God. You may remember the scene in Exodus 33. For the sake of time, I I cannot. You have no idea how bad it pains me. I want to unpack every single one of these with greater degree than I can, but you probably remember what's going on here in Exodus 33 and In short, we get to verse 18 of that chapter. And we find Moses pleading with God. He says, please, Lord, show me your glory. Now, Moses had seen the glory of the Lord. He had seen the glory of God. He saw it in the bush out in the wilderness. He had seen it upon the mountain. He saw it there in the tent of meeting. But these were something that was indirect and and, and mediated. Moses wanted to see the fullness of God. He knew the sinfulness of the people that he was traveling with. He knew that it would have been right for God to destroy them and to abandon them along the way. And so he wanted greater assurance. He wanted to see more of God. So what he says is, God, please show me your glory. Show me more of yourself. But man cannot see the fullness. Man cannot see the face of God and live. Not only because of our sin, but because of his infinite nature. The creature cannot fully comprehend He cannot fully consume. His his mind cannot contain the reality of the creator. It's simply not possible. And so, because God says to him, "You, you cannot have a full, unmediated look at my glory, I tell you this, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. The Lord will proclaim his name, Yahweh, Moses had already heard the name of God. God already revealed this to him. Yahweh, I am who I am. That is my name. The infinite, eternal, self-existent creator of the universe. I do not derive my existence from anything else. I am not sustained. I do not continue on as God independence to anything else. I am who I am. Now here's a greater revelation of who I am as I am. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. Do you see this? Yahweh, the great I am, he's revealing himself to Moses, to us. He is putting his glory on display. And what is he revealing? His absolute sovereignty in the extension of grace and mercy. I am. And as I am, I will give mercy to whom I will give mercy. I will give grace to whom I will give grace. Not based on anything outside of myself not based on anything within man, not because they have a right to demand it, not because I must give it to everyone equally. I am, and as I am, I give mercy as I see fit. My glory is seen in this. I will be gracious to whomever I will be gracious. Does this not seem to match up absolutely perfectly with what the Apostle Paul says here in Ephesians 1? That he has chosen that he has predestined, that he has saved a people to the praise of his glorious grace. That's the end for it all. That's the reason why he's done it all, to reveal 
the grace and glory that has always been his. And so, surely you see this. It's to neglect the doctrine of divine election. It's to willfully close, close our eyes to what God is revealing. Not only about the way that he interacts with his creation, but about himself as the creator. While there will always be unanswered questions, we must try as hard as we can to understand. We must strive to see, to rightly know as much about God as he would allow. Again, I direct your attention to the fact that Moses did not seek for God to conform to his image. Moses did not tell God who God is, as uncomfortable as it was. What Moses needed, what Moses wanted, the greatest gift in all the universe was for Moses to see God as he is. So the second way that people approach this text, a common interpretation of this text where we read that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world is to point to that phrase, in him in Christ they believe that what Paul is saying here is not that God has chosen a specific people unto eternal life but that he has chosen Christ that Christ is the chosen one that anyone who therefore comes to saving faith in Christ can by extension be called chosen what they say is that this text it speaks about the way of blessing about the plan of salvation but not God's choosing of a specific people to receive that blessing and that salvation It's often presented something like this. God has determined before the foundation of the world that he would send his son to die for the sins of men. This was a gracious and unmerited gift that God would have been right and just to simply destroy all sinners and cast them into hell. And yet he provided one way. He chose Jesus Christ. Any, therefore, who choose to place their faith, any, therefore, who choose to believe in Jesus Christ will be saved, but that God has in no way chosen who those people will be. Now, I must say at first that when you hear this, this is a very attractive interpretation. It really is compelling. The reality is that I agree with much of it. Christ is the only way of salvation, and anyone who trusts in him will be saved. Plus, when we get to Luke 9, we, we read that as Jesus was up upon that high mountain, he was there with Peter and James and John, and he pulls back the veil to his flesh and reveals his eternal and infinite glory, the glory that had always been his. We read there in verse 35 of Luke 9, the father saying, this is my beloved son, my chosen one, listen to him. Jesus is the Christ, the chosen, anointed Messiah, the beloved son of God, And as I've spent many weeks trying to make very clear to you, it is only in him that any man can be blessed and saved. It's on account of him and on account of his work and nothing else. You must be in Christ. But is that what Paul's talking about here in Ephesians? Is that all that he means? When he talks here about God's choosing of people, when he talks about those people being in Christ, is he merely talking about God's choosing of Christ? I submit to you that a simple reading of the text would say no. Paul says that God chose us. The direct object of God's choosing is not Christ, it is us. It is the saints. He says that he chose us, that he predestined us. We are the object of God's choosing. But you could go on to argue that still doesn't indicate, though, that God is choosing a specific people. After all, he does say that those who are the saints are those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. So you could say something like this. Think about a checkpoint at a border. Let's say that there's a guard there, and his job is to select who will be inspected. He is looking for certain things. 
this guard, he looks up and he sees a blue bus in line. This bus, it meets all the requirements for selection. So this guard, he points to the bus and he tells them to pull to the side. Now we would in no way be wrong to say that this guard chose all the people on the bus when in reality, what he chose was the bus itself. This man didn't choose these people personally and specifically and individually. He certainly didn't cause these people to get on the bus. He chose the bus itself and thereby, thereby everyone who happened to be on the bus. Everyone who chose to place themselves on the bus. Are you following me? Maybe all that God chose was Christ and only by extension are we chosen in him. Maybe God did not have a specific actual people in mind all the way in eternity past. Perhaps as an act of absolute unmerited grace, God gave his son. He sent his son to lay down his life so that any who placed their faith in him would be saved, but he had no determinative number in mind. It could have been a billion. It could have been zero. But God did his part. He offered a way of salvation, but he did not choose who would be saved. He did not choose who would receive it. He did not make the decision who would be in Christ. Again, I say, this sounds really solid. It makes sense to our minds. It seems fair to us. God offered a way of salvation. It's up to us to take it. What else could you ask for? What else could he do? God offered a way of salvation. Now, we must make the decisive decision to receive it. Again, I say, it sounds completely reasonable, and it seems to match our personal experience, doesn't it? Someone came to us, and they shared the gospel. They didn't talk about election. They didn't talk about predetermination. They didn't talk about whether or not we were chosen in God. They presented us with a choice. Choose you this day. And we chose life. We chose to get on the bus. This matches up with our reality. This matches up with our experience. But does it match scripture? Is that what Paul means when he speaks of God choosing people and these people being in Christ? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 1. Paul has just spoken about the reality that the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. What, what you'll find whenever you begin to study this doctrine of election, what you'll find is that so much of what God has said is in response to the unbelief of others. He's, he's, he's revealing why do these men fail to believe? Why do these men remain blinded? He's giving answers. The answer to the question that we're asking. Why do some believe and some persist and sin. So what we find here is that Paul is saying that the wise, the powerful men of this world, they reject the word of the cross because it is fully, excuse me, folly to them. It's a stumbling block. It's foolishness. But to the saints who hear the same gospel and believe and are saved, Paul says this in verse 26. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brother. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in order to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is lowly and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. God called. He chose foolish and weak and lowly and despised people to shame those who were smart 
and powerful and strong. This doesn't mean that the smart and the powerful and the strong are somehow disqualified from receiving salvation. He's showing that he has gone against every single worldly standard to make absolutely clear that there was nothing in these people that commended them to God. It was not some decisive decision that they had made was not some quality that he saw within him, no condition that they had met. God chose them, he chose us, so that no man may boast, so that he receives all the glory. And he goes on to say, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Do you see? According to the Apostle Paul, it is God's choosing. That is the reason why you are in Christ Jesus. Individuals, specific people, when we get to the end of this fourth verse in Ephesians 1, Ephesians 1, 4, we'll see Paul saying that it is in love that God predestined us. His heart, his love was upon you, not just his son, not just some nameless, faceless people upon a bus who may or may not have chosen to be in Christ. You, in love, God chose you. In love, God predestined you. When we get to the book of Ephesians, you'll notice I'm all over the map here because I'm wanting to show you it's all over Scripture. Once you see it, it's like seeing a yellow bug somewhere. You, you can't unsee it. You find them everywhere. Not because it's a figment of your imagination, because your eyes have been opened. As we get to the book of Revelation, Revelation 13, 8, we find that there's a book. In Revelation 20, 15, we read that anyone whose name is not written in this book will be thrown into the lake of fire. It is called the book of the life of the lamb who was slain. And there are names written on it. Individual names personal names, the names of people who are guaranteed to endure in faith to the very end. And what does John say? He says that these names have been written there before the foundation of the world. Dear children, do you see where we are? Right back before the foundation of the world. Right back in eternity past. He says right there, before you ever existed anywhere other than in the heart and mind and will and purposes of God, he wrote your name in this book. That's what God is saying. What he's saying to the saints in Ephesus, what he's saying to the saints in Crosby, Texas, to those of you who are sitting here today with Jesus Christ as your Lord, he says you are here. You are in Christ because I chose you before anything else existed. That's why he talks about before the foundation of the world. Let me ask you a question. If it's just a matter of timing, would you care whether God chose you yesterday or a billion years ago? Why would you care? Why would he highlight that if it were not to make clear it ain't based on you, man? It's solely on me and my sovereign efficacious grace. He says you are here because in my mind, and according to my decree, my son had already, before the foundation of the world, been given. The lamb had already been slain. And in love, your name was already in the book. In love, I wrote it there. Your name. You. Do you see how this drives worship? As I tried to show you some weeks ago, in the heart, and the mind, and the will and the purposes of God, there was never a time when he did not see you in Christ. For the sake of his glory, on account of his son, God loved you. He chose you. So that brings us to the third and probably the most popular interpretation of this text, that God chose us in Christ 
before the foundation of the world. This is the interpretation that I grew up always hearing. This is what I was always taught to believe. You see, what happens is that Christians, they come to the realization that God has, in fact, chosen a specific people by name before the foundation of the world. There's really no escaping it. Not if you study the scriptures. That God has chosen specific people by name. They see evidence of God's sovereignty and election, and, and they can come to no other conclusion than that. That God has chosen, he is predestined, who will be saved. But, they say, God has chosen these people because he looked forward through the corridor of time and saw that they would believe in Christ. You've heard this teaching before. I believed it for most of my adult life. Here's how most of us got there, okay? We know that God knows everything. We know that God is truly eternal and omniscient. omniscient. That not only does God know everything, but that he learns nothing, he forgets nothing, he needs to be reminded of nothing. That in one simple, single, immutable act, God knows everything. Everything that is, everything that will be, everything that could be, God knows everything. Now, there's certainly some nuances to the way people think about God's knowledge. There's new heresies that seem to be popping up every day with regards to how men think about God's omniscience, how God comes to know everything. But generally, all Orthodox Christian, we agree with this. Those that haven't fallen into the heresy of something like open theism, believing that God learns things, that God must be reminded of things, that God is experiencing time and, and just taking in information in real time like we are. But, the man who holds to the biblical view that God knows all things always, immediately, at once, and necessarily. Many of them have concluded from this that when Paul says that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that what it means is not that God chose us to be saved by faith in Christ, but that God chose us because he saw that we would come to faith in Christ. That we made a decisive decision God saw that we would make that decisive decision and therefore he chose us. Another way of stating this might be that some men teach that God's election is contingent upon our faith. I submit to you that the scripture teaches that our justification is contingent upon our faith but that our faith is contingent upon the election and the will and the purposes of God. Do you understand the difference? This seems to me that the majority of evangelicals today, the majority of preachers today, they believe that God chooses, but he chooses based on this condition. He looks forward in time and he asks, who will believe on Christ? My very first sermon that I ever preached to you, years ago, most of you probably weren't even here. I probably ran all those folks off by now. But years ago, I don't believe I was saved, by the way, when I preached this sermon. But it's still a decent sermon, and that's scary. But the very first sermon I ever preached as a young man years ago was out of Second Chronicles 16.9. We read there that the eyes of the Lord range to and fro throughout the whole earth, looking to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. So we come to a text like this and we say, see, see, God's just ranging throughout the earth, the yet uncreated earth. But God's eyes are ranging throughout the earth, looking to see those who will have faith in his son, looking to see those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Again, there's a lot of different variations to this teaching, but this is the gist of it, that God chooses individuals before the foundation of the world, but that he does this based on the condition of foreseen faith. 
Again, God looks forward through the corridor of time. He sees those who will place their faith in Christ, and then he chooses them. And again, this seems like a very attractive interpretation. It seems fair to our minds. God offers salvation, but we have ultimate self-determination. We cast the final vote. We make the ultimate choice. We make the decisive decision. God is working to save everyone equally. God has offered a way of salvation. He's doing the same thing. He's extending the same grace to everyone equally. If someone's going to be saved, it is ultimately because they chose to believe. They made the decisive decision. Salvation is still unmerited. God doesn't owe anyone salvation. He didn't owe anyone this offer. He didn't owe anyone to give his son. He didn't owe anyone this gospel. And so God is is still giving a grace in the form of the offer of salvation, but he's not picking who will be saved. Again, I say we're very comfortable with this arrangement. But church, I submit to you that a desire for comfort, a desire to rationalize God, a desire to relieve theological tension is what drives men to these unbiblical positions. We come to the word of God and we find two undeniable truths. God is supremely and inalterably sovereign. Sovereign over all things, including the salvation of men. We come to verses like this that says, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. At the same time, we see that men make real choices that they really want with real consequences, and they're therefore responsible for those choices. We read Jesus telling men who never came to saving faith in him, depart from me, you cursed one, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And our mind is racing. So let me get this straight. God is sovereign. He is in control of literally everything. But I make real choices and are really responsible for those choices? Is that what I'm meant to believe? We cannot stand the tension. And so we end up embracing philosophical answers. We just want a key. We just want a thought. We just want a peace that will quiet our mind, that will calm the tension that allow us to move on to something else. But the problem is it turns out to be unbiblical. Friends, I say this with all love and respect. I say this to you as a man who has been right there. I lived there. Ask my wife. I almost drove my spiritual life off a cliff. I couldn't stand the tension that I found here, and I I just wanted something to make it make sense. And I was terrified that what I was reading in Scripture made God into a monster. God holds men accountable. He punishes them for all eternity if they haven't believed on Christ. And yet you're telling me that the only men who can believe on Christ are those whom he has chosen and enabled? And then someone presents the answer. God isn't choosing unconditionally, they say. He is choosing based on foreseen faith. His chosen based on those that he sees will decide to choose on him. Now this, again, I say makes sense. It's logical. It eliminates the tension, the free will of man. That's the answer I was looking for. God does all that he can to save everyone, but we have ultimate self-determination. We cast the decisive vote. We make the final choice. That way, God doesn't appear to be picking winners and losers. And then I went back to Romans 8, the thing that messed me up in the first place. I go back to Romans 8, the one passage that kicked it all off, and I read in verse 28, for those he foreknew, there it is. 
For those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined he called, and those he called he justified, and those he justified he glorified. Foreknown faith. Surely that's what Paul was talking about, my mind told me. But there was a problem. It didn't fit with the whole of Scripture. The reality is, it didn't even fit with the context of Romans 8. And the more I dug, the more I studied Scripture, the more I came to recognize that God is not a puzzle to solve, he's a mystery to behold. That he does not promise or owe us comfort. As a matter of fact, Everyone I find that comes to God in Scripture, everyone I find that gets a true glimpse of God in Scripture, they get real uncomfortable real fast. So the more I study the Scriptures, the more I prayed, the more I realized this isn't biblical, this doesn't work, and I was right back to being miserable. And this is why so many people get so mad at preachers like me. I'm disturbing the peace. But beloved, I submit to you that the tension found in these twin truths is intentional. It's not a glitch. It's not a bug. It's meant to be. Because it's living there. It's embracing and seeing and living in the middle of this tension that God uses to drive us to awe and wonder. It's where he brings us to humility and dependence. It magnifies just how other God really is. It leads you if you stick with it, by the working of God and the power of his spirit, if you will press on into this, asking what does God really mean by what he's really said, it will lead you to unshakable joy. It'll drive your worship. The reality of God's glory revealed in this, I will have grace and mercy upon whom I choose. Christian, what if what God is saying to you in his word is I am holy and completely and inalterably sovereign over every single subatomic particle in the entire universe, including in the salvation of men. Nothing happens outside of my eternal decree. And every single man makes real choices according to what he really wants and is therefore really answerable, therefore really responsible. For the choices that he makes. And what if then God looks to you and says, stop trying to create some human equation which makes sense to the minds of lost men. Stop making excuses for me. Stop trying to explain away the things that I have clearly said. Put your hand over your mouth, fall down on your knees, and worship. What if that's what God is saying? Dear children, I promise you that he led me to that place. And when you do, when you find yourself there, things get real good real quick. I know for how many of you in this room that's proven to be true. Looking at my watch, again, I remind you that my goal is to move slowly and to speak clearly. Again, I have trouble with the speaking slowly part, but what we're staring at here in Ephesians 1-4 is truly foundational. And so it seems to me that I would be a fool to limit us to just one Sunday morning gathering to try and explore what it means. So in the time that we have remaining, and there's, there's not a whole lot, I have the ability to just, just touch for a moment on my interpretation of this text. And I was texting with Andrew last night, actually, and we 
have come to a conclusion, this consensus of two, we have come to the conclusion that this is a good thing. This allows you time to chew on it for a little bit, to, to mull it over, to consider it, to come to me with questions and concerns, and I'll, I'll take arguments and yelling too. But to consider what God has said here, to consider what I'm showing you, I see here in the scripture, and then we'll come back together next week, and I'm going to drag you into some deeper waters. But you're thinking, I forgot about Romans 8, right? I got off easy. I didn't address that. What about this? What about this? Is that what Paul is saying? That those whom God has predestined, he's predestined them because he foresaw faith in them? I suppose the first thing we need to do is consider the wording. I know that sounds picky, but one of the keys to understanding Scripture, you learn this in reading any book, but one of the keys to understanding what someone meant by what they said is actually considering the grammar. They chose these words. What did they mean by the words that they chose? Does Paul say that God foresaw, that he foreknew faith? He doesn't say that he foresaw anything. He says that he foresaw people, the chosen ones, these that are his. Those are the objects. The direct objects of God's foreknowledge are people, those whom he foreknew. Those whom he foreknew are the people that he predestined, the same people that he would call, the same people that he would justify, the same people that he would lead to glory. You see this, right? It makes no mention of faith. Now, faith is implied there. It has to be implied there because justification only comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so the faith must be there between the calling and the justification. There must be something about the calling that guarantees that the men who receive it will come to saving faith in Christ. Therefore, the chain would be broken. Therefore, he could not say with absolute certainty that those he has called, he is justified. The faith is there, it's implied. But that is not the object of God's foreknowledge. It's the person. It's not completely unlike what we read when God speaks to Israel. In Amos chapter 3, verse 2, we read this. God says to Israel, you only have I known of all the families on the earth. God is not saying that he knew something about Israel. He's also not saying that of all the families on the earth, he literally only knew the family of Abraham. He's talking about a special relationship here. As a matter of fact, if you read this text in the NASB, you'll see that it reads, you only have I chosen among all the families on the earth. There's an intimacy. There's a special nature, relational aspect to God's foreknowledge. When you come to Jeremiah 1.5, some of our very favorite verses around here, we read that God says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nation. God foreknew. He chose. He consecrated. He appointed Jeremiah to be a prophet before he was born. Was Jeremiah the only baby he knew? Was there something he saw in Jeremiah? That might be what you come to. You might be tempted to think, well, yes, but again, God knows all things. So perhaps what happened was he saw something in unformed Jeremiah, in being formed Jeremiah, that would have commended him for the office of prophet. Couldn't there have been something that caused this choosing? Certainly that's the objection that I once raised. That's the, that's the doubt that tends to creep in, again, because it seems fair to us. It seems rational to us. But again, I submit to you that if your theology seems rational even to the unregenerate, unsaved mind, it might not be good. So I would ask the question, what could God have seen in Jeremiah? What good could God have seen in Israel? What could God have seen in you to warrant his choosing? 
Faith? Let's talk about faith. Let's talk about faith specifically with regards to its relationship to sin. When I began my sermon talking to you about the depravity of men, talking about the lostness of men, the depraved state that we are born into this world, I didn't conclude my thought. I didn't work the argument all the way out to its very end. You see, man is not only unable to do anything to atone for his sin and make himself right, for, right with God. We've got another problem. You see, in John three nineteen, Jesus, speaking of himself, he says this, the light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. He does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Man by his nature loves sin. Man by his nature chooses sin. Man by his nature cherishes sin and darkness and therefore he hates Christ. He does not love, he does not receive the gospel because the gospel is contrary to the very thing it loves. It threatens to expose it. The gospel does not stand up against the thing that he loves, himself and his sin, and therefore he hates the gospel. He hates Christ. He runs from the light. It's an issue of the heart, the will, the desires of men. When we get to Ephesians 4.18, we'll read that it's the hardness of the hearts of men that leave them alienated from God. Not only the heart, but our mind. You remember last week that I directed your attention to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 2.14 where he says that the natural man does not, he cannot understand or receive the spiritual things of God. He says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 4.4 that their minds have been blinded to the glorious light of the gospel. Are you getting the picture? Man by his very nature as he is born in Adam into this world, literally the default setting of every single man thanks to the fall is that he loves sin and he hates God. More terrifying than this, that natural man is in such bondage to sin and Satan that scripture says he cannot submit to God's law. Jesus says in John 8, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Paul says in Romans 8 that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so I say to you that natural man, fleshly man, man as he is born into this world, if he is just left to himself, he cannot please God. He cannot understand spiritual things. He cannot love Christ. He cannot even see the light of the gospel. Now this is not a cannot as in something external to man is forcing him to reject God or that man does not or cannot make real choices based on what really seems right to him. Man is free to choose that which he wills. And if left alone, he will always choose sin. He is morally unable to love or trust or obey God. He is morally unable to see the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ and come to it in repentant faith. Jacob's favorite brother, excuse me, Jacob's favorite son, Joseph. We read about him in Genesis 37, 4. We read that when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all the brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Joseph's brothers weren't mute. No one cut their tongue out. They hadn't forgotten all the nice words. Nobody put a gun in their back and demanded they go out there and betray Joseph. It was that their love for themselves and their hatred for their brother was so great they could not bring themselves to speak peaceably to him. It's a moral inability. 
And perhaps this is a faint picture of what the relationship of natural man is to God. Natural man is to the offer of the gospel. They don't see it as peace. They don't see it as love. They don't see it as delightful. They don't see it as a thing to be cherished. They don't see it as a thing to trust in. They see it as a thing to be run from. They despise it. They hate it. Man is unable to rightly understand or to embrace it. He will gladly receive the gifts that God gives him through common grace. He will even do some things which appear to be outwardly good, but natural man cannot truly repent and trust in Christ. This is why Paul says to us in Ephesians 2 that man is not merely spiritually sick or wounded or bound for a moment, but spiritually dead. Unable to rightly respond to or receive and come in faith to the promise of Christ. Again, I say, not because he's coming to Christ and being stiff-armed, not because he's wanting to come to Christ and something external to him is resisting him, because his heart and his mind and his will are so corrupted by sin, so enslaved to sin. The gospel, Scripture says, is such a stench to his nostrils that in what can only be called an act of spiritual suicide, he always chooses sin and always rejects Christ. Therefore, there can be no faith for God to look forward and see unless he himself has made it happen. There can be no faith unless God intervenes in the life of a man and works to bring about repentance and faith. Unless God calls him to life. Unless God reaches into his chest and removes the heart of stone, that hardened heart that loves sin and hates Christ. Unless he reaches into his chest and gives him a heart of flesh, that man will continue on like the rest of mankind, alienated from God, resentful of Christ, spiritually dead. And therefore, God's election, God's choosing of man to salvation cannot be based on foreseen faith or any other condition that man has met. It must be, it always is, according to his own sovereign decree, the good pleasure of his will to the praise of his glorious grace. And nothing else. Dear children, I think I will conclude with this. I would call you to see the glory of God as you look upon him and see just how totally, how radically, how absolute God was from all eternity past, working to accomplish your salvation. I pray that you would recognize that salvation is truly and totally of him. I pray that you would recognize that you sit in this place primarily for one reason and one reason only, because of the saving grace of God. Because in eternity past, he chose to love you. He did everything necessary to accomplish, to apply, to guarantee your salvation, to bring you to repentant faith in Jesus Christ, and it's because of that and that alone that you're in this place today, and it's because of that that he is worthy of all worship and praise. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you that you have chosen to reveal yourself in your word. 
Father, you do not owe us these glimpses of yourself. Sinful rebels that have that spent all of our natural life fleeing from you and hating you and loving the darkness, you owed us absolutely nothing. Father, we're reminded as we come to texts like this that no man in this world receives injustice from you. We may receive sovereign, saving grace from your hand, or we may receive the justice that we are due for our sin, but that no man from the hand of God receives injustice because you owe us nothing. So, Father, we praise you then for everything. We praise you for the clothes on our back, the food in our bellies, the cars we drove to get here, the homes that we left, the families that we have, the fact that you have healed us every single day up until this moment, and we praise you most of all for salvation. We thank you, Father, that you did not formulate some sort of a plan where it was 99% you and 1% us, for we surely would have rejected. We praise you, Father, that you have worked faith and repentance in our lives and brought us to this place. I pray, Father, that if there is one here that has not come to that place, that you have not worked that in their life yet, that you would do that today. I pray, Father, that you would save those in this room today that have not yet been saved. Father, I pray that you would be glorified by the songs that we sing and the meditations of our heart. God, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.